Last week we talked about the fact that the church is God's family. And I want to ask the question for you today, uh, what kind of family is God's family? There's lots of different families and communities out there. Uh, What makes God's family distinct from other families? We can identify maybe some similarities, but what's the difference? How are we actually different? Well, one of the questions I think that's helpful in working this out is to think about this. Uh, Whose family is ultimate? Now, before you get defensive um, about this, um, just think about this conceptually for me. Like uh, some of you last week may have ended up kind of in the space, hopefully, where you're thinking, okay, so it's God's family, but then I've kind of got a natural family. And all I want to just ask for a little bit now is whose family is actually ultimate? Uh, One of the things... um, that I think is, has been uh, some comments that have been made about uh, the family in churches in the West is that families go really close to family idolatry. Um, and, and I want to just kind of tease this out a little bit and help you to think a little bit about this uh, in the context of uh, whose family is actually ultimate. If you uh, take, as it were, a, uh, a jigsaw, um, a jigsaw, a completed jigsaw, I wonder the way that you actually think I wonder how you think about family in that context. Is family, is the big jigsaw the natural family and God's family is a piece that fits into that? Or is the big jigsaw God's family and my family finds a way to fit into God's family? Now I want to suggest to you that if you think that family is ultimate and natural family is ultimate, you're probably going pretty close to some kind of family idolatry at that point. All right. If you're actually thinking the big jigsaw of life is about my natural family and I've got to find space sometimes to fit God's family into that, I think we've kind of got things the wrong way around. You see, the question about whose family is ultimate is about which family takes precedence and priority. All right. Now, some of you are probably sitting there right now and you're just going, okay, so what do you, where are you, I know where you're going, I know what you're up to. All right. You're going to tell me that you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff in the church and that your family doesn't matter. All right. Like you're part of God's family at your own family's expense. And I want to say to you this morning, I'm not saying that. All right. Because God's not saying that. God doesn't give you commands to do things that destroy a command that he's given you over here as well. Does that make sense? It's like if I obey that law, I break this one. That's not how God works. All right. What we're talking about here is... Uh, which one finds its fulfilment in the other? Which one finds its identity in the other one? Which one finds its expression in the other one? And I want to suggest to you that I think the one that you can see on the screen there is the wrong way around. I actually think it should be like this. I actually think that the way that God's made it is that your natural family is not ultimate. And God would actually have you find a way to plug your natural family into God's family and actually find its fulfilment and its identity in the context of his family. Now let me just push in just a little bit further on this whole notion of family here. Okay? You notice on the left there, uh, the subtitle there is uh, family and community. There's lots of families and communities in our culture. What's the difference then between a family and community and a family and community that's that's gospel-centred? That's a good question. You see, families and communities that are not gospel-centred, let me tell you a little bit about what they're like. The main momentum for those is essentially inward. And we're asking, they're asking questions like this all the time, like, are we all okay? Are we travelling okay? 
Is everyone happy? Is everything going fine? You see, it's like we're protecting the family unit. And this is the thing I'm saying to you. I'm not saying that that's wrong to protect the family unit. But if your family fits into God's family and God's family is a gospel family, what's different? All right? The problem with a family and community that's not gospel-centered most of the time is that it's not actually outward-looking. The momentum is toward itself. It's to make sure that everyone's okay. But here's the bottom line. If your family is gospel-centered, whether it be your natural family or God's family in terms of the project here, the momentum is actually essentially outward. How do I know that? Um, Open your Bibles. And go to uh, about three pages into your Bible, Genesis 3. What have we got here in Genesis 3, 14? um, So we're going to read verse 14 and 15. But what we've got in Genesis 3 is the story about how basically um, the devil comes in, tricks Eve, Adam does nothing, and then a whole bunch of trouble happens for thousands of years. All right? That's, That's a quick summary. Um, and what we actually get to, uh, after, after we hear the story about how humanity turned their backs on God and worshipped uh, something other than God for the first time, um, is, is kind of the curses um, that get laid out for uh, the people involved in it. In verse 14 there of Genesis 3, you see the curse for the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Listen to this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right? Just a quick tip. If two people have a fight and one's got a crushed head and one's got a bruised heel, the guy with the heel problem won. All right? That's just how it works. All right. So basically, what's this? Well, theologians actually say that these last two lines here in verse 15 are something they call the uh, Proto-Evangelion. All right. And do you know what that means? It just means the first gospel. This is like the first gospel, right? What's gospel? It's good news. Well, the good news is that someone's going to come and he's going to take out the devil, and he's going to win, and there's going to be some, a whole bunch of really good things happen. All right. So what you've actually got here in Genesis chapter 3 at the first sin is the first piece of good news. And what's the good news actually telling you? Well, the good news is telling you is that someone's actually going to come and rescue you. There's an outward movement to it. So that's, that's what the gospel is, right? This first whisper of the gospel is that someone is going to come and help from outside your system. The trouble that you're in, someone's going to come in and rescue you. And so here's the bottom line. We just want to be thinking about gospel and thinking about mission today. There's not one person on the whole of the planet that ever is original when it comes to mission. Why? Because God's been on mission since the first sin. Before anyone in human history was on mission, God was on mission. Do you hear that in Genesis 3? He's on mission. All right? And you can go to Ephesians 1, and this might trip your brain out a little bit, right? But you go to Ephesians 1, and you know what it says in Ephesians 1? That God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Now, this will trip you out, right? God was on mission before humanity was created. Think about that. He was on mission before any humans were ever created. So when you actually go to get on mission, you're not starting something new. You're not doing something that God's not doing. You're not original all right you're just partnering with god in a plan that he's had for the ages and some of you might be going at this point in time you just go okay can you just just remind me again like what 
What's the gospel? Well, there is an absolutely precious scripture. Look at this one on the screen here. This just, in a sentence, is the gospel, right? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. See, God didn't create us so he'd have kindling <laughs> for hellfires, all right? That is not why he created human beings, all right? He created them. He wants to save them through Jesus Christ because they turned away from him and wanted to do their own thing so that whether they're awake or asleep, they might live with him. You know what the ultimate goal of being a Christian is? It's not perfection. It's communion. Like, think about that. The ultimate goal for you is not ultimately to get you to heaven. The ultimate goal is not ultimately for you to be perfect and holy. The ultimate goal for you is actually communion with God. Which is why John in the Gospel of John says that eternal life is this, to know the one that he has sent. Who's that? Jesus, right? So you, you actually, eternal life is actually is, exists in a sense in knowing God. It's actually communion. That's the end goal for everything is to know God and to live with him is communion. So if this is what the gospel is, if God comes out to save us, then you can actually, you should be starting to get a bit of a sense, what's a gospel family? Well, a gospel family is one that has a trajectory of going outwards all the time. So be thinking about that with regard to your natural family, but specifically with regard to uh, God's family as it's revealed here in the project. And I want to ask this question of you, all right? And I'm going to give you heaps of hope, right? But I've just got to depress you for a little bit, all right, before we get there. I'm maybe not depressed, but you know what I'm saying. I've just got to give you the truth a little bit, and then we'll get to the hope bit. I want to ask you, how big is your missional vision? How big is it? When you think about people who don't know Jesus, how big is it? You know... My dad was just talking the other day, I think it was, he was talking about a country in Africa that's got like 90-something percent of people who are Christians. Like, how big's your vision? Like, some of us go, ah, oh, man, it's like, you know, downtrodden Australians. Oh, it might be 4%, all right? Oh, but it's 10. We think it might be 10 in Toowoomba. Oh, that's good. It's got, like, really? Like, is that as big as your vision gets? Like, 10%? Like, have you ever thought, have you ever, ever sat and kind of, thought and dreamt about what it would be like if 50% of Highfields loved Jesus? Like that could happen, right? Couldn't that happen? And then some of you should be sitting there going, why only 50? Is anyone thinking that? Why only 50? Why couldn't we have 70? Why, why, couldn't, it, why couldn't God break out in our culture in such a way that there aren't enough churches to fit people in and it's just an absolute mess because there's people all over the place that love Jesus? Why couldn't that happen? Like it's happened in history before, right? And I'll just ask you this morning, like, is your vision big enough? Is it big enough? What about for your neighbours? What about for your friends that don't know Jesus? Is it big enough? Have you given up? You guess like God's not doing anything there. They're never going to become a Christian. They're never going to follow Jesus. I'll just be happy for one. Jesus, if you just give us one this year in the whole project, one person that comes to know Jesus... And I'd go, that's great, isn't it? Is anyone with me? Like, it's good if someone comes to know Jesus. But it's better if a hundred do, isn't it? Like, let's have a hundred. Like, if you said to me, in the project this year, what would you prefer? 20 people loving Jesus or 50? 
What would you prefer? 50. <laughs> All right. So here's my question for you. Like, how big's your vision? Have you got a vision big enough? Or have you just, it's kind of like, here's the thing, this is kind of what happens with us sometimes, right? It's like we can't see the forest for the trees. And you know what that saying says? It says you can get so stuck in the details that you don't see the big picture. And that can happen with missions, right? There can be a lot of stuff going on around the place and you just go, oh man, it's messy. So let me, let me just put it on the table. What about the moral struggles that we've got in Australia? Right? And they're coming. You know it. Like there's referendums coming. A plebiscite, I should say, not a referendum. There's a plebiscite probably coming. All right? Yeah, like, you're on Facebook, right? People share stuff. There's kind of some moral kind of outrage at where things are going in Australia at the moment for some Christians. How do you feel about that? What's your vision about that? What about your vision for the church? What do you think about the church in Australia? I mean, we're just absolutely, I mean, we're kind of connected, not formally, but in people's eyes, we're connected with the Catholic Church and institutional stuff that's going through the whole Royal Commission at the moment. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, the church reputation's copying a beating at the moment. It's like we weren't doing that well before that and we're copying even more of a beating now. What's your vision for the church? What about Islam? <laughs> Islam, that was a good one. It's like, what's your vision for that? It's like, do you just go, oh, it's going to get us. You know, just go, Brother Peter, it's, it's coming. and There's nothing we can do. See, that's, that's a vision. That's some kind of vision about what you think could actually happen with that. It's a small one. I want to ask you today, are you stymied by the details at the moment? Greg Sheridan is a, uh, a journo with The Australian. He wrote an article in June. I'm going to read out a portion of this article um, just to get even a bit more of a sense of where we're at, just to really encourage you. <sighs> Sarcastically. Yeah. Australians, Australia's Christian churches are in crisis on the brink of complete strategic irrelevance. Now, here's the thing. He's probably right. Is that true? I think, he's, I think he's probably right. I think we are on the brink of complete strategic irrelevance. He says this, It's not clear they recognise the mortal depth of their problems. The churches need a new approach to their interaction with politics and the public debate and to keeping themselves relevant in a post-Christian Australian society. The public position of Australia's increasingly aggressive secular culture that God is dead is an eccentric view for any society to hold at any time in human history. What's he saying? He's saying it's unusual for any society to completely disregard the existence of God. Most of them uh, agreed to that. All over Africa, Asia and much of, the South, much of South America, religion, Christianity but also the other big religions is booming. Whether the human propensity to believe presupposes the existence of something to believe in or not, religious belief is dynamic, protean and passionately alive. Not in Australia though. In Western Europe, on the east and west coast of the US and in Australia, the new religion of aggressive secularism is on the rise, more self-confident and fundamentalist than ever. Hear this clarion call from him in this paragraph. Widespread, prolonged affluence has been more effective than oppression ever was in killing religious belief and practice. To take one figure almost at random, in 1954, 74% of Australian Catholics attended Mass each Sunday. Today, the figure is substantially less than 10%. Now, I heard it said recently 
you know, there's two different ways in general that you can control people in a society. One way is with Big Brother and the other way is to give them most of what they want. And then they don't object. And I think that's where we're living. I think capitalism and consumerism has actually given us most of what we want and so people don't object. And it's like it's really got to, someone's really got to push something before people actually get fired up. He says this, the churches cannot recognise and come to grips with their strategic circumstances. They behave as though they still represent a living social consensus. So do you feel downtrodden? Is your vision big? What's your view? And let me just have a, a quick, um, honest, direct little conversation. I guess I'm the only one talking, but we'll call it a conversation. Here's, here's what we believe at the project, right? Is that behaviour, we don't centre on behaviour, we centre on the heart because the heart motivates behaviour, right? So if you want to change behaviour, you have to deal with the heart, right? So tell me, if things in Australia morally are going downhill, where, do, where does the church need to actually focus the most? On legislating behaviour or on heart change? Heart change, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think, just, you don't have to give an answer to this, do you think that Australian Christians are as aggressive about missions as they are about morality? So you just think about the last time that you shared some post of some kind of outrage that you saw on Facebook. Like if behaviour actually comes out of where the heart is at, it logically makes sense that what we actually need to do is we at least need to put as much passion and effort into missions as we do into morality. True? True? If we don't, I think we're in trouble. You see, all that's going to happen, if we get out there as a church and we legislate some kind of, and I'm not saying that you don't do that, right? Some of you are going, well, what are you saying? We don't support that and we don't actually fight for stuff. No, I'm not saying that. I just think that we have to have equally or more so of a focus on mission to change people's hearts. Because you know why? If you don't do that, you know what's going to happen? People are just going to eventually revert back to the behaviours that flow out of their hearts. That's, that's the way it always works. So now, you know, I'd encourage you, like, sit there now and just go, I wonder what percentage of Christians in Australia would turn the tide of morality? I don't know, are you bold enough to think 30%? Like it would, right? Like if the Australian figures are up around 30% of people were actually full-on serious Jesus followers, that would change things, wouldn't it? Like it would. Let me ask you this question. Do you need your head to be lifted up a bit at the moment? Anyone like some hope at this point in time? Anyone up for a bit of hope? Because there is heaps of it, right? I'm going to give you a bucket loads of it. The rest of today is actually about hope. All right? But you need to remember something about missions. Okay? You need to remember something about reaching people uh, for Jesus. Is that it's the character of God that actually gives us hope. All right? It's the bigness of God and his missional plan that he's, he's been on since the whole, since the first sin that actually is our hope. And uh, some of you might know that um, Psalm 3, verse 3. Uh, 
Have you heard that saying? It's like, God is the lifter of my head. Have you heard that? You know who wrote that? David wrote that. You know when David wrote that? When one of his sons was trying to kill him, basically. That's what it would have been. Absalom was chasing him because he wanted to be king. It's just like, that's pretty intense, right? It'd be pretty easy in that moment to not see the forest for the trees, right? My son's coming for me with an army and they're trying to find me to get rid of me. And in that psalm, in Psalm 3, David, uh, by God's grace, finds a way to actually see who God truly is. And by the end of it, it's like, you lift my head up from despair to hope. So let's, um, let's push into hope. One, one more little challenge before we get there. Anyone know Brother Andrew? Brother Andrew started Open Doors, a persecuted church. Um, just going to go back there for a minute. Uh, the persecuted church. Uh, support kind of uh, network. Uh, the guy smuggled Bibles uh, across the Iron Curtain uh, um, for years, all right? Um, they wrote a book about him. Uh, it was published in 1967. It's been 10 million copies have been sold. It's been printed in 35 different languages. He's 85, still traveling the world now, talking about missions and runs Open Doors, a ministry focused on assisting Christians and churches at risk. This is what uh, Brother Andrew said. He said, if your vision doesn't scare you, then both your vision and your God are too small. If your vision doesn't scare you, then both your vision and your God are too small. So right now, think about your workmates. Have you given up on them? Have you given up on your neighbour? Have you just, you just conceded and just gone, yeah, I think I could find a way to be happy with 4% of Australians following Jesus? All right, here's the hope. From despair to hope, listen to this, Luke 10 verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but who's few? Labourers. So what's the issue, harvest or labourers? Who are the labourers? Us. Do you get that? Now, you just, you kind of go, well, you're having a go at me again. No, I'm not, right? Like, this should inspire you. you just get, Jesus is going, hey, listen, the issue here is not that there isn't a harvest. The issue is that people aren't going out and collecting it. Like, that, that should inspire you. You just go, well, I'm going to start going out to collect because it's out there. Jesus said that, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to trust what he says on that. What about this one? Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Where do you put gates? At the front of your place, right? Okay? So we're not saying the gates of heaven won't prevail against hell, right? So the gates at the front of hell are not going to prevail against God's church who are just going to come and take it out. Like that's hope giving, isn't it? It's like we, we're going to win, right? And like the devil and his angels are not going to be good enough and strong enough to actually stop what God's doing in the church. Some of you go, oh, not my church. Or maybe it needs to be a revitalised church. Maybe it needs to be a church that prays more. Maybe it needs to be a church that has a bigger vision. Maybe the vision of your church is too small. And here's a question. It's a question for all of us here who, who go to church to the project. Is the, is the vision project, sorry, is the project's vision too small? Is it? How about this one? John 10, 16. I'm not even going to put up 
a small percentage of the verses that would give you hope about this stuff. What about this one? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. You know what Jesus is saying? There's people out there that belong to me. Can you go out and get them? That's a gospel family, right? Go and get them. Like that, that is hope giving. It's like you're not going out, you're just going, oh, you know, the poor oppressed minority in Australia, you know, the churches. You know, Jesus is saying to you, they're out there, go and find them and bring them back into this family. Like that, that's a gospel family. Do you see that? That's what the church is meant to be. That's what we're meant to be. It's like we are people who go and we gather people that belong to Jesus and we bring them into the family. Who's up for that? That's why we're going to do a church plant. All right, Because church plants are the best way to find people, like statistically the best way to find people out of anything in terms of finding those that love Jesus and bringing them and making them part of the family or people who need to start loving Jesus, people who are part of his sheep. See, now I'm getting all confusing. People who are his sheep, all right? That's what he's saying there. Are you with me? So that's what we're going to do. And that's like a couple of years away. And you know what you do? Like if you look at the end of, uh, of Colossians the book of Colossians, you actually see a whole list of names at the end of Colossians. You know what Paul, the apostle, did because he was gospel-centered? He sent just about all of the best people away from him. That's what a gospel-centered vision does. It takes your best people and you send them away because the momentum is outwards, not inwards. If we find all the good people, you know, like there's part of me that just kind of thinks, he's not here today, so I'm going to talk about him. There's part of me that thinks in, in another couple of years, I just think Matt's going to, you know, with a bit of experience and with, and, and with people around him and doing some Bible college, he's going to be a really effective pastor. I think he's really effective now, but he's going to be even more effective then. And do you know there's part of me that just goes, I'd love to just keep him at that point, you know? It's like you invest in him and we're kind of investing in him so that he can do Bible college and we're investing in him and, and training and mentoring him and doing all that sort of stuff. It's like, let's invest, train, mentor, go to Bible college and then we'll keep him. But see, if you do that, it's not a gospel family, is it? Because that's not what the gospel does. The gospel gives the best and pushes them out. I mean, there's no better example of that than Jesus himself, is there? God gave of his best and he sent him out to gather people for God's family. And that's what we'll do, all right? And you just kind of go, oh, it's not as comfortable. It's not as nice. No, it's not, all right? But I'll just say something to you. The, the main mission of the church is not service delivery, all right? Our job is not to actually provide services for you so that you're all happy and comfortable all the time. Because you've already heard today that when you're happy and comfortable, you're less effective. So that gives us an excuse to be really terrible at our jobs. <laughs> Maybe not, but you know what I'm saying, right? And I talk about it pretty often with the staff. I just go, we are not here for service delivery. We are not here for service delivery. Have we slipped into providing services for our members to keep them happy and satisfied? We do think we need to feed you and we do think we need to shepherd you, but you know why? So we can push you out. Because <laughs> that's gospel. That's gospel. Gospel pushes out. Okay. Going to give you some more hope. Let's keep going. Nielsen poll in 2009. Listen to this. In 2009, I pause on this, 70% of people believe God existed of some sort. It's just like you've already got a joker in your hand. Like if you're playing cards, you know, you've got a trump card right there. 
Like, if you, if you wanted hope, it's like, yeah, like, most of them already believe that God's real. It's like, you've already got a head start. You're off first base. I mean, Ange and I were, uh, we were just talking a little bit about this just recently, about, and just thinking, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's actually represented in society because most of the people that we interact with actually believe that a God exists. You got yourself a head start. You're not coming in cold. It's not like you've got to go out to 90% of Australian culture, a hard-nosed, aggressive atheist who don't even think God exists. Yet that, that's not it. Like 70% think that God exists. Got to get excited about that. You guys, you're parting on the inside, aren't you? Excellent. What about this one? This is from the Nielsen poll in 2009. Conventional Christians, whatever that, I don't even know what that is. Are you a conventional Christian? Um, those who believe in and occasionally worship a personal God make up a neat 50% of the population. This is reported on in the Sydney Morning Herald, right? Now, I don't, I don't even know what all of that is, right? But all of the talk, and I've been part of it in the past, we've just got to be careful, you know, and I, I, I probably should have been more careful. We, we've got more of a head start than what we think in Australia when there's a lot of people who are sympathetic to this sort of stuff. Um, another organisation, uh, McCrindle Research, who do some reputable stuff, they did another survey. Listen to this. Australia's got more churches than schools. It's just like, why didn't someone just go, woohoo, how good's that? Like, we are clear winners, right? We've got 13,000 churches plus 9,500 schools. That's good, isn't it? Let's make that 13,001. That would be cool. What about this? 1.8 million people go to church each week, which is about 7% of Australia. You know, that's more than the total population of South Australia. Think about that. Every week... Imagine the whole of South Australia going to church every week. That, that's going to, you know, more than that. That's what's going on here. Anyone like some more hope? I'm going to keep going because there is some good stuff here. Check this out. Church attendance in Australia. Top six reasons Aussies don't go to church. Look at number one. 47% say it's irrelevant to their life. Like, you should be sitting there just going, oh, I can help you with that. (laughs) Can't you? Because that's what you do, right? When you walk with Jesus, it's like you're working out how all this amazing truth about God sits in your life. It's just like, if half of people are saying they're not engaged with church because it's irrelevant, you just go, well, that's an easy one. I mean, you get down here with issues with clergy and ministers and don't believe the Bible, it might get a little bit more tricky, right? But straight off the bat, we're up this end here, irrelevant to my life. Oh, yeah, we can help you with that. That's no drama. Let's look at the second one. Don't accept how it's taught and outdated style. I mean, we can deal with the first three, can't we? Like, those are no biggies. They're easy. And even this last one, too busy to attend. There's some good news here. Here we go. Let's, let's have some more good news, all right? Facilities your community needs, all right? Which new community facility would most meet your community or your needs, all right? Look at these. Now, I'm, this is a little bit depressing, all right? Local church is 13. Leash Free Dog Park is 9. <laughs> Or 10, sorry. <laughs> That's, it's like, yeah, we couldn't really use a church, but we'd have a leash-free dog park. 
You just go, oh, that's a bit harsh. What about this one? Wishing your community service would most meet your community, your needs. All right? Now, look at this. Languishing in 10th place. Okay? But just before you just go, I thought we are doing hope. We are doing hope, right? Watch this. Look at, look at like the top 10. Teen activities and youth groups. Huh. Employment support and job skills training. Eh, maybe we don't do that as much. Maybe we could. Counselling and crisis support. Ah, that's familiar. Oh, playgroup and kids clubs. Seminars and social activities for seniors. We've done some of this this year. Financial seminars and advice. Oh, parenting seminars and support. Relationship seminars and support. Do you get what I'm saying? Like all of those services that people want, or almost all of them, are what church should be doing, right? So that's like really good news. What people want is what we're meant to be. I'm excited about that. Anyone else? Am I the only one here today? We're almost the only one here today. It's a bit of a, bit of a lean, lean morning for us. What about this one? Churches are beneficial. 43% of people say, for me personally, and 88% of people think that churches are beneficial. Now, you wouldn't think that, would you? Because all the local media is out there banging it on a drum that's kind of saying the church is a, a pain in the hiney, all right, and it just gets in the way. We want to love people and look after people, and they just get in the way, all right? It just, it, church people are just really annoying. And uh, uh, alongside that is we've given a whole bunch of ammo to them, haven't we, right? Because we've got the whole Royal Commission going on, and churches are just getting beaten up big time in the press. But isn't that interesting? It's like people think we're beneficial and we're helpful. All right, what about this one? Look at this. Life priorities, spiritual and religious, languishing way over here. But have a look at number one, family. <laughs> so we can help you with that one. Is that what you want? You want family? You want relational? Yeah, man, that's, that is our sweet spot. We, uh, we can get right into that. What about this? this? This last one, I'll just tee it up for you. This last one is a bit of help for you, all right? It's got nothing to do with what I've been talking about, really. But it's like, what names could you give yourself to other people that are the biggest turn-off? That's basically what it is, right? So it starts off with the positive ones up the top and gets down to negative. So you could call yourself a practicing Christian or an ordinary Christian. You're doing pretty well. Don't call yourself an evangelical Christian or a fundamentalist Christian, like you're right out of that point, all right? So let me uh, ask this question. How are we tracking? How are we tracking with our vision? If, that, if that's actually some kind of description of the mission field that's right in front of us, how are we going with it? Like, how, how big is your vision? Have you given up uh, on the vision? Let me take you to the, uh, the project's vision. Here's the project's vision. Our, our uh, vision for the project is to be a vibrant community of Jesus' disciples, reorienting people to him. So we, we, our heart is for the project to be a bunch of people who are known for how they love Jesus. They're known for how they love each other. They're known for how they love their community. And they're actually known for the deep healing they bring as they restore true humanity in partnership with Jesus. That's what we're gunning for. Now, if you've got your Bibles, can you flick over to John 4? If you're not familiar with the Bible, it uh, just works the same as any book. Got contents in the front. You can find out the page number for the book of John. We'll go to John chapter 4. Some of you might go, well, 
this is pretty complex. How do we do this? How do we actually get about and do this? And I want to I suggest to you this. The very existence of training in evangelism in churches, in telling people about Jesus, probably tips us off to the fact that the church has got no idea when it comes to missions, sometimes. Has anyone ever noticed that? Has anyone ever noticed like the best people who tell other people about Jesus who are people who have just become Christians? Have you ever noticed that? And so they go out and they just go and start telling people about Jesus and all the rest of the church who don't have any contact or very little contact with uh, people who don't love Jesus um, kind of scared about it and so they go and do training programs and then hardly ever do it. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's like there's something very simple about um, telling people about Jesus. We don't, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't have training programs that help but my experience in churches is training programs, um, I, I mean, it's exactly what I said. That they're strategies for people to use who don't really have any contact with people who don't know Jesus. And they're kind of scared and they don't know how that's going to roll. So what strategy am I talking about? What method are we talking about here? Well, you guys know this story out of John 4, right? So Jesus is walking through uh, Samaria. Uh, Samaritans were uh, looked down upon by the Jews. He didn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, and Jesus pulled up at noontime, middle of the day, thirsty, needed a drink, sat next to a well. And a lady came, a Samaritan lady came to get water. Now, you're sitting there and you're going, what's odd about that? Well, there's a whole lot that's odd about it because women wouldn't actually go on their own to get water and they definitely wouldn't go in the middle of the day. So it actually tips you off that there's something going on for this lady, that she's on her own, she's in the middle of the day. And Jesus and her start having this quite um, amusing conversation. And Jesus does classic Jesus where he just kind of pushes in and kind of needles in and wants to get into the areas of her life uh, where things are a little bit messy. And she kind of keeps kind of ducking and weaving and, and, um, and trying to avoid some of those things. And in the end, if you go down to verse 16 there, in John 4, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know? And then look at the next verse. Straight up she goes, Oh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you guys say, Jerusalem, where should we worship? It's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. This lady is like the classic line. It's like she's just kind of pushing away. Don't go there. Don't go into this part of my life. But what's actually happening for this lady? Well, probably a whole bunch of shame. You know? I mean, there were some regulations. I was reading, doing some research on this, and there were some regulations about allowances for how many marriages you could have bust up before you shouldn't get married again, right? And, and one of the regulations was three. It's like once you've done three, like just pull up at that point in time. We're not going to endorse you doing any more. So she's had five, and now she's got a de facto. And I've heard some people say that she's, she's with that man, uh, in a sense, offering her body so that she can have a roof over her head, basically, is what some people have actually suggested. So Jesus says, where's, where's your husband? I don't have a husband. <laughs> You've had five. You know, there's a sense in which, isn't this a lady where humanity has been attacked in a sense, probably by herself and other people. 
And Jesus meets with her at this, at this well. And they have this uh, f- uh, ongoing conversation that goes through the next few verses. Go down to verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, listen to this, and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Did you hear that? Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Can this be the Christ? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Go down a little bit more to verse 39 there. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Listen to this. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. You know what this lady did? She actually had an interaction with Jesus and she connected with Jesus and Jesus changed her life. And what did she do? She just went and told some people that Jesus changed her life. You can do that. (laughs) And you know what she said? It's like, why don't you just come and see this guy? Come and see him. Like if you just came and saw him for yourself, you'd be convinced. And so he gets invited in and he hangs around for a little bit and all these people who this lady said, come and see, came and they saw and they were dramatically changed. Go back across with me to John chapter 1. It's only a couple of pages here. Look at this, it's a calling of the disciples. Go down to verse 35 of John chapter 1. It's a calling of the disciples. Going to start at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Well, come and see. (laughs) It's like there's some people hanging around and they're just going, Oh, you look interesting, what's going on? Where are you staying? It's like, oh, Jesus is saying, Why don't you just come and see? All right? And then go up to verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Listen to what's happening. Someone's going and saying, come and see. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Meringandan? I mean, Nazareth. Philip said to him, what did he say? Come and see. (laughs) Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. The king of Israel. Why? Because someone said, you say it? come and see so i was listening to um matt chandler the other day and you know what he did with his church and you know i just i don't believe in this someone else does it so we should do it but do you know what he did they kind of all made a bit of a covenant a bit of a promise that it's just like and threw a challenge out and said just like everyone find one person to just go and tell about how jesus has changed your life somebody doesn't know jesus because you know what actually happened with him is he, he became a Christian because a Christian man came along and said, I want to have a coffee with you because I want to I tell you how much Jesus has changed my life. And do you know for the next 12 months, 
Matt Chandler didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity, but he liked this guy, and there was something in the message that he was saying that got to him, so he kept hanging around and hanging around. It may not have been exactly 12 months, but it was a long period of time. And in the end, Matt Chandler ends up becoming a Christian, and he's running a church now that's got like 10,000 people in it. Like that's amazing. Do you know, and, and all, all his friend did was sat down and said, I just want to tell you the story of how Jesus has changed my life. And there was part of me, I thought, wouldn't that be cool if we had a week at the project where everyone just kind of covenanted and promised and just said, I'm going to have coffee with someone this week and I'm going to just tell them what change Jesus has made, brought about in my life. I'm just going to tell them about Jesus and what he's done in my life. And no pressure or anything. Like you don't you know, have to do an evangelism class about how to present the gospel. Just come and see. <laughs> this is what he's done for me. Come and see. And I'll just encourage you today. Maybe you could do that. Maybe you could do that this week. Maybe you could just be a bit intentional and just kind of say, hey, just maybe having a conversation with someone that you normally catch up with, they don't love Jesus, and just you take five minutes and just say, hey man, or friend, whoever they are, just say, hey, Jesus has done, can I, can I just tell you about something that's changed my life? And it has. It has just changed my life. And it's Jesus. And this is what he's done. This is what I was like. And this is how, this is how I'm different now because of what he's done in my life. You could do that, right? That's not hard. You don't need a lesson to do that. You don't need to be trained to do that. You seem to be able to say, come and see. I want to finish by reading a couple of questions and answers from uh, Brother Andrew. You know, sometimes if you just lose a little bit of your vision for, for missions... Uh, and for people coming to know Jesus, it's good to hear from someone who's a bit, bit hotter than you. Um, so uh, just sort of read a few questions and answers from a, uh, an interview that was done um, by Christianity Today with him. Listen to uh, what he says. Here's a question from the interviewer. So you're really encouraging Christians at the grassroots to step up to the challenge, become informed, and then to live a life of deeper devotion to the gospel cause. Listen to what he says. Absolutely. If I could live my life over again, I would be a lot more radical. This is a dude smuggling Bibles across the Iron Curtain for years. All right? Called God's Smuggler. And he's just going, 85, he's just going, yeah, I was was a bit soft in places. All right? I should have really just lit it up in a few places. He goes, I've been too much on the compromising side. A pastor came into my office. He said, Andrew, those Muslims now, they've bought another empty church and they're going to convert it into a mosque. Isn't that terrible? I said, no, that's not terrible. He said, why not? I said, you know what's terrible? That your church was empty. That's terrible. If your church were full, there would not be a mosque, uh, nor would there be place for, or, or the demand for a mosque. Like, that's fair call, right? It's like, let's just, let's, let's fill them. Let's, let's fill the churches. Let's see God fill them and pray that he does that. It's not what he says. Make sure that your church, whatever the building is, and as far as I'm concerned, big church or a small church, but that people come because they hunger after and thirst after righteousness, God's righteousness, then you reach out in compassion to those out on the street. I live in a small town in Holland. We have 40 homeless people in my town and I feel ashamed. We don't help them. We all go to church because that is the thing to do and we bypass the people with no place to live or to sleep. Multiply that a million times. What are we doing for the refugees in the Arab world, in the Congo, in Mali and in Afghanistan? Good questions, right? 
When Christians, individuals or their local churches step up to this challenge, does it make any difference? This is the greatest witness because now the world will see that, hey, these people are different. There's a change in attitude, but the change begins in the heart of people when they turn again to God because God calls them. Then there will come times of refreshing. The Bible promises that. Do you find that people are saying, oh, well, that's just Brother Andrew? (laughs) Are people responding to this kind of prophetic call? Listen to what he says. That depends. They're not responding in any countries where people have plenty. Here's the thing. God will do his work and the church will prevail. The risk is not (laughs) that God's plan won't come about. The risk is that we will miss it. That's what the risk is because he'll do it. And and like I mentioned earlier, it's like (laughs) Christianity is booming in Africa right now and in South America. And, And it's, I mean, you can hear the clarion call here. Maybe it's got something to do with us having too much stuff. Listen to what he did. As soon as I was a Christian, I put on old clothes and I went to Amsterdam to the slum area to live there as a homeless guy. And I wanted to know how they live, how they think, how they feel, how they make money or don't make money. You know, and then he goes, we actually need to find out about how people live and, and how to connect Jesus with them in that kind of way. What about this one? Might even finish on this one. Not long ago, of course, Osama bin Laden was assassinated and the whole world rejoiced. Thousands have died in drone assaults. What is your response to such killing? Listen to what he says. I've been speaking in meetings in America and part of my sermon was, have you prayed today for bin Laden? People were rather shocked and some people said, I must confess I've never prayed for bin Laden, but now I do it. Listen to this. It's Brother Andrew. Bin Laden was on my prayer list. (laughs) It's a big vision, right? I wanted to meet him. I wanted to tell him who's the real boss in the world. Like, who's doing that? Like, master terrorist in the world. Like, most of us probably, or certainly me, you just kind of go, oh, he's a lost cause, right? We'll pray for all the minions and see what we can do to to help out with that. Maybe if, if we even do pray for that. This guy's going, nah, I want to actually be able to tell bin Laden about the gospel before, before he got killed. That's what I wanted to do and I was praying for him. Let's finish with this. We must witness to people, Brother Andrew says, and all the people that I now talk about in Gaza that were murdered were people that I met in their homes and I gave a Bible. I prayed with them. Suddenly I feel like it was an attack on me because what, I, what can I do if, you know, that is a dilemma for me. My ministry in Open Doors is not the big town preacher. I go in quietly, but I still go in places where I'm not supposed to go. Hallelujah. Our government should not know everything where I go, but they certainly should see what I do and what I say because... What I tell them is exactly what I tell you and what I tell my own church in Holland, the message of Jesus Christ. I have no other message. I would gladly accept the fact that I am one-sided and I am, hallelujah, and I just want to be a messenger for Jesus Christ. That would be God's call for you today. Amen.